1968, a young man graduated from Newtown High School, the next town over. He was a three-sport athlete. He went off to college where he focused on track and field. Well, by 1976, he won the Olympic gold medal in the decathlon, which is kind of the preeminent event in the Olympics. He went on to become a national hero. Who am I speaking of? Bruce Jenner. Fast forward to 2015. Jenner was again in the news. This time, he announced that he was becoming a woman. He did a famous interview with Diane Sawyer and appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair with the title, quote, Call Me Caitlin, his new name. For his transition, Jenner won numerous awards, including Woman of the Year by Glamour Magazine. His new uh, Twitter account broke records for the amount of new followers, and he landed a reality TV show. That was back in 2015, and the acceleration and the growth of the transgender movement has continued in the last five years. And it's also resulted in fierce debates about transgender athletes having an unfair advantage in competition, fierce debates about whether or not people should be allowed to use the restrooms of the opposite sex from their birth. There are debates about who pays for these very costly sex reassignment surgeries. Should taxpayers pay for those? Should that be covered by medical insurance and so forth? And now, in recent days, people are losing their jobs simply for voicing their view that men and women are biologically distinct or losing their jobs because they refuse to use a person's, a transgender's person's preferred pronoun. On and on it goes. And like I said, this has continued the last few years, and we're now at a place as a culture that it literally does affect everybody in some way, shape, or form, and the influence has continued to grow. So in the midst of all this, what does the church make of the transgender movement? Does sex and gender, does it really matter? Are we squabbling over details that medical technology can just simply work its, its way out? And how does the church minister to our culture and bring glory to God? I think this is a really important set of questions. And we're in the third part of a three-part series called God, Sexuality, and gender. And what stirred me to preach about this series, it's been on my mind a long time, but it's just a, a growing realization that the greatest threat to the church, the greatest challenge, I think better said, to the church is its view of sexuality and gender across a, a wide spectrum. As I said in the first message, the church needs to declare a better story to the world, a story that is grounded in the biblical textures and, and plot line of Scripture rather than the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the story that has unfolded ever since. We need to remind ourselves of the goodness of God's plan that He has in store for people, that He is the author of all good things. Amen? He created sexuality and gender, and He connects abundant blessings to them. 
as the church then, so we need to understand, declare, and also in our own lives, live these things out ourselves to the glory of God. So, in the first message, we discuss God's pattern of sexuality, which is heterosexual marriage, found in Genesis chapter 2. All other forms of sexuality are forbidden. We saw in that passage there that uh, there are tremendous This is the pattern of of marriage. There's also tremendous positives of marriage. God knows what he's doing, and he wants people to flourish when they follow his plan. We saw positives like spouses, children, and even nations benefit greatly when we follow the pattern that God has in store for people. We saw the purposes of God's pattern, right? He desires for us to have uh, companionship and procreation and how marriage is meant to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Isn't that remarkable? So marriage matters greatly to God. And so therefore, as the church, it should matter greatly to you and I. And so we also went on last week to address, okay, we know there's pressing challenges to the biblical view here, right? We all know that. And the first challenge was what we saw last time, homosexuality. Despite claims by people in academic circles or the media, Scripture is very clear in both Old Testament and New Testament that homosexuality runs against what God's design and will is for human sexuality. We also looked at the fact that uh, when it comes to what are the exact causes, is it genetic or is it environment, that really the best explanation is the fact that environment plays a role. Genetics may possibly play a role. And we saw that that would actually fit within a biblical worldview because we all come into this world with a fallen nature. And homosexuality is be one of many sins that all of us could fall into. Okay? And so we kind of wanted to cover that basis there with that first challenge. Today, we want to talk about the matter of sex and gender and the challenge of transgenderism. Now, before we begin, I need to clarify two terms that often get thrown out in the conversation in our culture, and they get muddled, but it's important to draw a distinction, and those two terms are sex and gender. What we mean by that is, to put it simply, sex, biological sex, is just that. It's biological, right? And gender is psychological, The American Psychological Association, a very secular source, right, but gives a helpful summary here, says, quote, sex is assigned at birth, I would prefer to say recognize at birth, but I'll go with it anyway, refers to one's biological status as either male or female and is associated primarily with physical attributes such as chromosomes, hormone prevalence, and external and internal anatomy. Gender refers to the socially constructed roles, behaviors, activities, and attributes that a given society considers appropriate for boys and men or girls and women. These influence the way that people interact, act, interact, and feel about themselves. While aspects of biological sex are similar across cultures, aspects of gender may differ. So did you get that? Sex is biological. Gender is how we live out that biology according to the cultural standards of masculinity and femininity. Now, for most people, their sex matches their gender. Their biology matches their psychology, okay? But for some people, they don't match. 
And what people refer to this is gender dysphoria. That's the label that you're going to see out in our culture. And for someone who is experiencing gender dysphoria, they would say that they are transgender, that their gender identity does not match their biological sex. Now, approximately 0.3% of adults percent of adults identify as transgender. It's about 700,000 people in our culture. So we're actually talking about a very minute portion of our population. But we know how significant of a voice this population has. So that's just kind of some groundwork here. Now that we lay the groundwork, we always want to say, okay, what does Scripture say about this topic, right? With anything, we go to the Word of God, amen? So what would Scripture say about gender, sex, and gender? Well, biological sex is a fundamental, essential part of creation all throughout the created order, right? Creatures are distinguished by being either male or female. And so it is part of God's design. And the capstone of creation, of course, was human beings. And God created human beings, male and female. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we also know that God approved of what he made, right? He surveyed what he had made. And it says in Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Jesus comes along in the New Testament and affirms God's design of creation. Now, obviously, essential to the purpose of Male and female is procreation. Genesis 1, God, it says, made the birds and the sea creatures, quote, they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And God said the same thing to humans, right? To be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And so biological sex is how God made creatures to multiply. But I want you to understand, it goes much further than that, especially when it comes to human beings. Your biological sex is not accidental or incidental. It goes to the very fabric of who you are. For example, when a human life begins, we all know that it begins at conception. When a sperm and an egg unite, that's when life begins. Did you know that at the moment of conception, that is when your sex is determined? So from the very beginning of your life, (laughs) you are either male or female. And it doesn't stop there. As development occurs, we develop everything according to our sex. Your biological sex affects every part of you, literally. Do you know this? You're, You're comprised of trillions of cells, and your biological sex is imprinted on Every single cell that you are male or you are female. Cardiologist Paula Johnson says every cell has a sex. And what that means is that men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular level. It means that we're different across all of our organs, from our brains to our hearts, our lungs, our joints. And so this is interesting because as we develop then... Men and women actually experience the world quite differently. Ryan Anderson, he wrote a terrific book about transgenderism. He says these words, Indeed, after the reproductive organs, the brain is possibly the most sexed organ in a human being. 
This is not to say there are male brains and female brains, but that on average there are differences in the brains of males and females that tend to make a difference in how men and women experience emotion and pain, how they see each other, and they remember and navigate. I think we talking about navigating. I think he's getting at the well-known truth that men are never lost. <laughs> Despite what the GPS say or the wives say, men are never lost. Amen? That's right. That's right. So our biological sex, it affects how we process the world, even just sitting here right now, our emotions, our memories. Indeed, we come out of the womb different. They did a study with one-day-old babies. The males will tend to focus on mechanical objects. The females will tend to focus on faces. And you can't say, well, that's, they learned, they're one-day-old. They didn't learn anything. That's just how they came out. So there are profound biological differences between men and women. And so when people come along and say, well, men and women are basically the same... They have no idea what they're talking about. They're not in touch with the reality. They're not in touch with, with science even. And I get to say personally, you know, I grew up with two brothers, no sisters. Now I live in a house. <laughs> Wife, three daughters, no sons, and even... Two female dogs to throw in, the, throw in there. I've seen both sides. Do not tell me that men and women are basically the same. You might as well tell me the sun and the moon are basically the same. They're deep and profound differences. And this is what Scripture teaches. But what about gender? How we express those biological differences. You know, God wants us to align our sex and our gender, our biology and psychology. They're inextricably linked. But what's fascinating is that when you look in Scripture, Scripture doesn't give long laundry list, detailed list of how men and women are to express their sexuality, per se, right? It doesn't say, well, man has to have shoes that look like this and hairstyle that has to be this and women have to do this. There's not that long detail of how gender is expressed, okay? And I think Scripture is wise because how gender is expressed can vary depending on the culture, right? There's kind of that core uh, essential masculinity and femininity, but how it gets fleshed out can vary, So, for example, if a man walks around in a skirt in the United States, people would question his his masculinity. But if he's in Scotland or Ireland, no one bats an eye because it's a traditional garb for a man. Even within a culture, we need to be careful what makes someone masculine or feminine. For instance, what, what makes someone masculine in our culture? Some might say, well, you know, they're very athletic. Some might say they're really mechanical. You say, well, which one is it? Well, personally, I know for me, uh, I think people, men who are more athletic are much more masculine. That's because I'm much more athletic than I am mechanical. So, At least I used to be more athletic. I know you're not, not very much now. But it doesn't really matter. I don't think that's what makes you. 
Because you might have a guy that says, you know, I'm not really athletic or mechanical. I love art or I love music. That doesn't make you more or less masculine. And I think you can look at it in other ways too. Some women love to cook. Some women don't love to cook, right? This isn't necessarily a sign of femininity. Or in our day and age, of course, we have a lot of pressure on what a woman is supposed to look like, right? The airbrush models we see on the magazine covers, and that's what a woman is supposed to look like. We need to be careful about how we classify expressions of gender that are very rigid and excessive. I think a lot of people are hurt, frankly, by these things that aren't necessarily biblical at all, but we just put them on there. Yes, our biology needs to match our psychology, and most people are going to work this out, but there are some variables when it comes to culture that we need to be careful of. Now, I need to say one thing. You know, kind of after studying this issue, I, I was deeply reminded about the importance of sex and gender. I don't think we realize how significant this is in God's eyes. And we kind of downplay it sometimes in the church. I think sometimes we downplay it because we have this kind of sneaking suspicion that God made our spirits good but our bodies bad. But that's not what we find in Scripture, is it? God made body and spirit good. We use our bodies sinfully, but our bodies are good. Our sex and our gender are good. And if we denigrate that, we're actually denigrating what God has made. And I think sometimes we also minimize it because we, we realize that in heaven, in the new creation, there isn't going to be marriage and procreation. But that doesn't mean that our sex and gender now is not significant. And Scripture does kind of hint at the fact that when, when we are in the new creation, we still are going to be male or female. When Jesus was resurrected in his glorified body, he was still male So God has made sex and gender. They are good things. He knew that it was good to make male and female, not just to keep the species going, but that it's actually a good thing for us. You know, it's kind of fun to get together with people of the same sex and fellowship. You know, guys doing their thing, or like the ladies had their luncheon yesterday, and it was fun and all that stuff. It's good to have that, but we also need both sexes, don't we? And I think just as different, you know, ethnicities and languages, they glorify God, so too sex and gender glorify God. They show that we're remarkably distinct, but yet complementary. We have a great need for each other. And I think every Christian should be at a place where you recognize that and celebrate what God has made. And if there are hindrances, maybe we need to ask the Lord to help us grow and appreciate what He has made. Unfortunately, Scripture also describes the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. And we know that Scripture says that this has had a tremendous effect on all of us. We're all sinners by nature, by choice. And our fallen nature affects every aspect of our being, our bodies, and our spirits. And so we experience spiritual alienation from God, right? We also know that our bodies, they are deteriorating. They're dysfunctional and so forth. And since sexual identity is central to who we are, it only makes sense that we are going to experience problems living out that Genesis 2 ideal. And it only makes sense that people will come along and sometimes have that mismatch between their gender and their sex, what they call gender dysphoria. And I think these struggles are real. I don't think we should minimize them and say, oh, they're just being fake or pretend. I think these are things that are real. 
You say, well, what's causing them? Well, they have, there's no one cause. It's like with homosexuality, environment plays a factor. Perhaps genetics plays a factor. But either way, we know that we are fallen creatures. We live in a fallen world. And all of this contributes to the condition that people find themselves in. So I think that's what Scripture would say about that issue of sex and gender. Just for a brief moment, I want to talk about our culture, though, a little bit more. So we can understand the transgender movement. Help, I'm going to help us do it by asking three questions. What is involved with a transgender transition to the opposite sex? You say, what, what happens with this? Well, there's a typical pattern. There's going to be a social transition. Someone is going to present themselves as the opposite sex, the way they dress, the way they go by their names and so forth. There'll be a social presentation of how they come across to the culture, right? Then there's going to start, it's going to start ramping up. They're going to start taking hormones of the opposite sex. So a man would start taking estrogen if he wants to start trying to become like a woman. And that will have an effect on him. For example, he'll start developing breast tissue and so forth. If they want to continue forward, then they will have future surgery. So a man's going to remove his reproductive parts and try to add female reproductive parts. Now, it needs to be made crystal clear that all of these procedures do not make a person the opposite sex. They do not. Yes, there are real outward changes that make them look like the opposite sex, but they are still their original sex. You cannot change your DNA. You cannot change every single cell imprinted that you are male, that you are female. And you can't go on to reproduce like the opposite sex. And what's very sad is that by the time someone goes through this entire transition, they can't reproduce at all. You don't hear this a lot in the media, do you? But that is the reality, is that you never actually become the opposite sex. You might look more like. But you don't become it. Paul McHugh is a very distinguished psychiatrist from Johns Hopkins University who's thoroughly examined this issue for many, many years. He's blasted regularly by LGBT advocates. And he writes, At the heart of the problem is confusion over the nature of the transgendered. Sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women. Second question is, what are the risks of these changes? Again, we don't talk about this, right? It's all just sort of glory that we see. But there are real risks that people go through. Now, of course, there is kind of a honeymoon period when people will transition sometimes. They feel relieved that they've come out and so forth. And the drugs that people use can often often get rid of anxiety. So there's a sort of initial honeymoon period But the long-term studies haven't shown any sort of increase in happiness. And what the studies do show is that people are putting themselves at tremendous risk. 2011, there was a study done in Sweden. About 30 years it covered people who had done sex reassignment surgeries. They found a higher death rate than expected. And what they found was very sad. There was a 19 times more likelihood of people committing suicide who would experience the process, the transgender process, than the non-gender, transgender population. 19 times more likely to commit suicide. 
Surgeries don't really get at the underlying issues. I read a number of stories of people who said, you know what, I went through the whole transition process, and even after all that, what I realized is that I had things in my life that happened to me when I was younger that I never dealt with, that I never processed, right? Once I actually dealt with that, all of that gender dysphoria went away. Now, I'm not saying this in every case, but it's crazy that we're rushing people into these things and not, and these people are sometimes very upset that they got pushed into these surgeries and procedures and no one ever stopped to counsel with them and say, well, maybe it was because of this that happened in your life. Third question is, what about children? There's a growing movement to normalize transgender transitions with children. Now, the steps that I mentioned earlier are the same steps, but they actually insert one more step. And that step is, is that after the child wants to, you know, socially identify, they will put them on puberty blockers. So in other words, if a boy, a young boy, wants to become a girl, they're going to prohibit his puberty. They're going to stop his development so that he can focus on becoming a girl. And then keep pressing on with the different steps in the process. Now in discussions about children, again, you don't hear this, but it's estimated that 80 to 95% of children who say they want to be the opposite sex, if you just let, if you let, let the course just run out and let them grow on to become adults, 80 to 95% will eventually say, you know what, I just want to stay the sex that I was born with. So their gender dysphoria works itself out on its own. And I'm deeply troubled by this push to involve children. My opinion, it is morally wrong. It is child abuse. Children are not able to make such drastic decisions. Plus, the medical field doesn't even know what these puberty blockers are going to do to people. In other words, if you take a 12-year-old boy and put him on puberty blockers for five years, we don't know what's going to happen after five years if the boy says, you know what, I want to stay a boy. That's five years of no development what is that going to do to that boy? Nobody knows. I don't think we should play God with anybody, especially the lives of children. The fact that this is not only allowed, but that people get uh, attacked for voicing concerns just to me shows how corrupt our society is becoming. Can't even have a conversation about it. Let me, let me just close with a few words about So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with these two pressing challenges to the biblical view of sexuality, homosexuality and transgenderism? I think the church really needs to put on two virtues and put them on very strongly in our day and age. And the first virtue is courage. Courage. It's a time for courage. As American citizens, you have to realize that you have just as much right to voice your view about these things as anybody else. This isn't a religious matter. This is a case where everybody as a citizen has a worldview, things that they think about, the the world that we have made and the lives that we're supposed to live. Citizens are allowed and should speak their views. And as Christians, it's vital that we know what we're talking about, right? That we have a biblically informed view and that we're declaring these things, that we're saying, hey, look, culture, there is a better story out there, right? Here is a better story. And as to these challenges, we need to address them and point people to God and say, you know what? 
It is not good to go against the design and pattern that God has put in place for humanity. The consequences that you're going to reap now and for eternity are not good. And practically, some, not not all, but some LGBT advocates, I mean, they just flat out want to silence the Christian voice. They're not seeking true tolerance or coexistence. I think we need to understand the situation, understand there's this growing censorship, growing suppression of people's ability just to have religious liberty, to not put our heads in the sand and act like it's not going on. One thing that's hit me is that, you know, the longer that this generation is silent, the harder it's going to be for future generations to live this out. You say, well, what do we do? Here's some just specific things. Talk to your school teachers and principals about what is being taught and express your concerns about maybe your child's safety with bathroom issues. I know when this came up four or five years ago, I called the principal, I called the school superintendent, and I had wonderful conversations with them. I was surprised at how receptive they were. And they also said they had not received very many calls. Post on social media, contact state legislatures, vote for candidates who support your values. I think we underestimate how much one voice can matter. There's a new book that came out. It's called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Children. It's written by Abigail Schreier. title speaks for itself. It's made a lot of waves. But, But my point with this book is that when it came out, Target, the retail store, pulled it off its shelves. Say, why? What happened? Two people tweeted their disapproval. And so Target, Target, this huge retail store, pulled the books off the shelves. Now it's back on. But do you see the power of people will just speak up? We need to resolve to honor God, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences, that we're going to say, I am going to honor God. And I know this is right and biblical. The church needs courage. Amen? The church also needs compassion. You know, these issues can ruffle your feathers, can't they? They can upset you when you see our culture pressing ahead, when your views are being censored, and all this. It's easy to get angry. But I think we need to treat people with compassion, kindness, and gentleness, regardless of what comes your way. Jesus, when he dealt with people, when they were broken, he always treated them with kindness and respect. And so as the church encounters people who are going through this, and yes, there are going to be a lot of people already who are burned by these issues, things that they're pursuing, the church needs to be there to welcome them and to point them to a greater hope. Amen? Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I don't think there's a place for Christians to be mocking people, making fun of them, delighting in their misfortunes. No, we're pointing to a better story, addressing the problems, but pointing to a better story with great compassion as people are going through these struggles. And I just want to close by reminding ourselves that ultimately, This isn't about a greater voice in society or political clout or whatever. It is always about our hope in Christ. Amen? Amen. 
Because what people in the LGBT movement, you know what they're ultimately about? They're about their identity. They're searching for an identity. Whether it's their sexual orientation or their gender, they're looking to be made whole, aren't they? They know something is wrong, and they know something is not right in their life. And so they're searching and say, well, if I pursue the same sex and my sexuality, if I change my gender, then I'm going to be whole, then I'm going to be complete. We need to be telling people, no, you can have a new identity. If you recognize that you were made by God and for God, if you recognize that sin alienates us, and the sins that you're pursuing, you know what? We all pursue different sins in different ways. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all chased idols that we think are going to be the answer to our problems. But none of them come through on their false promises. And God provides a way of healing and deliverance when we trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we ask forgiveness for our sins and we place our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Then and only then will you actually have an identity a true identity, an eternal identity, an identity that will never fade, an identity that all of us are searching for, all of us are longing for, to be right with our Maker, our Redeemer, to be a child of God. Let us not grow weary, church. Let us be courageous. Let us be compassionate. And let us point to the hope that is found in Christ. With him we can find that identity that is the longing of the human heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We thank you for your word. Thank you that you make things clear in a time of great confusion, in a time of disorientation, God, we pray that you would help us as your people to live, to understand, to declare a better story. Lord, also that we need to address these things that are happening in our culture, not just to put our head in the sand and hope that it goes away. But Lord, they're actually we're doing a loving thing by telling people, people of a better story. Lord, help your church, help us, Christ the Redeemer, to be courageous, to be compassionate, to be full of truth, and to be full of love. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us to be people who are change agents here in this community and in our world. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the identity you give us in Christ. It truly is the greatest treasure of our hearts. Remind us again and again of who we are in you and that great security confidence and joy that we find in it. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.